Tech Writer Worldwide. It's the High Tech Podcast in plain English with an hour's worth of news in about 20 minutes. That's because we leave out the commercials, the station breaks, the sports, and most of the jingles. Podcast number 688 for the 10th of April, 2020. This week, computer performance tests aren't only for those who want to brag about having the fastest computer on the planet. They can pinpoint bottlenecks for those who need to improve their computer's operation but don't know where to start. In short circuits, last week I described museum tours and other things you can do virtually when you can't go out. So this week we'll take a look at books, music, and other entertainment that can help you avoid climbing the walls. COVID-19 scammers are out in force with a wide variety of ways to steal money and credentials. Protection doesn't differ from what you should already be doing, so I may get a little snarky. In spare parts, only on the website, we'll review virtual private networks and video conferencing. VPN usage has seen significant increases in the past decade, and many video conferencing applications are far less secure than they should be, even for personal use. And 20 years ago, Macromedia had just introduced version 3 of Dreamweaver and included fireworks for the first time. How fast is that computer on your desk? Those who used to build and race hot rides might be interested, but should the rest of us care about this? Maybe you should, because these tests are about more than just having numbers you can brag about. If the computer seems slow, testing can show you where the problem really is. Starting with Vista, Microsoft offered the Windows Experience Index, and that was available to users through version 8.1. Then it seemingly disappeared. Keyword here, seemingly. Like many other discontinued Windows features, the Windows Experience Index is still there. It's well hidden, and there's no longer a pretty graphical interface, but it's there. So the two main points are, you can still run the Windows Experience Index and read several walls of text using a browser. And you can use a free utility application that takes output from the Windows Experience Index and displays it in a way that looks a lot like the way Microsoft used. If you're looking for a comprehensive set of tests that examine every part of the computer, you'll find the Windows Experience Index to be seriously lacking. But it's free, and applications such as PC Mark 10 start at $1,495 per year for business use. Now, there is a $60 home use version, a less full-featured $30 version, and a basic testing suite that's also free. The basic Windows Experience Index does have the advantage of being free, easy to use, and able to provide performance numbers that let users compare one computer to another. The test considers five major subsystems, the CPU, physical memory, the graphics subsystem, gaming graphics hardware, and the primary hard disk drive. Each subsystem test provides an overall score from 1.0 to 9.9 .9, instead of listing various component scores within the subsystem. 
Then the computer's final score is shown as the lowest of all the subsystem scores. Testing professionals may well scoff at that technique, but it does quickly and accurately identify the slowest component of the computer. So the best possible score, 9.9, .9, would require the highest number for each subsystem. If even one subsystem scores 6.3, for example, the overall machine score will be 6.3. The test values are actually produced by the Windows System Assessment Tool, also called WinSAT, and the computer will be slow during the test. The screen will probably flash and may momentarily go blank as the video subsystem is tested. To run the test, open a command window, or a PowerShell window, and type WinSAT space formal. You'll find that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, so you can copy and paste. Wait until the process completes. The results will be stored in your Windows directory under Performance, WinSAT, Data Store, as a series of files that contain the results for each component of the test. The file names all begin with the year, month, date, hour, minute, second, and decimal, and then the name of the file, the term WinSAT, and an XML extension. For example, I ran WinSAT recently and had a file called 2020-03-23-13-19-04.063 Formal Assessment Recent WinSAT.xml. Whew, what a name. So what's XML? Well, extensible markup language is a file type that's frequently used to transport data from one system to another. It's defined by a set of rules for encoding information in a format that can be read by both machines and humans. Now, there is a big difference between can be read and can be easily read. When you double-click the formal assessment recent WinSAT file, Windows will probably suggest using the Office XML file handler. Although the XML file can be opened in nearly any web browser, choosing the Office XML file handler is the best choice. It will open Windows Internet Explorer and display the file there. The first thing you may notice, based on the size and length of the scroll bar, is that the file is enormous. To make the file human-readable, the contents need to be exceedingly and astonishingly verbose. It's important to open the file in a program that understands XML. Opening the XML in any other application, such as a plain text editor, will produce a display that can still be read by humans, sort of, but won't be very useful. The primary information you want will be found near the top of the file between the WinSPR tags. Each component is on its own line. You'll see examples of this on the TechBiter Worldwide website. And there are other ways to see the score. For example, after running the WinSAT command, start PowerShell and type get-cimstance, sim instance, space win32 underscore WinSAT. You'll see that on the TechBiter Worldwide website, and you can copy and paste from there if you want to. This will display the labeled values for each component score and the overall score on the WinSPR level line. And instead of using PowerShell, you could download the free WinArrow WEI tool and run it. You'll find a link to the download on the TechBiter Worldwide website. This little utility doesn't even need to be installed. Just download it, unpack the zip file, and run wei.exe. 
This will display the values in a way that looks a lot like the method Microsoft used between Windows Vista and Windows 8.1. But wait, there's less, which is more. When the WEI utility is open, look in the lower right-hand corner and you will see these words, Rerun the Assessment. Now you might think that clicking that link would rerun the Windows Experience Index test and display the results. And if you thought that, you would be exactly right. So what's the point of walking around the barn three times and wandering out into the back 40 if there's a quick, simple two-click solution? Well, my point wasn't to frustrate or annoy you, and I apologize if that's what I did. The point is simply that Windows and most other operating systems offer several ways to perform any given task. Running the Windows Experience Index test manually and examining each of the resulting XML files will provide more information. Information that a technician might want, but information that might be too much for people who simply want to find out which computer subsystem is making the machine slow. Buying the $60 home version of a $1,500 diagnostic tool will provide even more information, so the decision involves contemplating just how valuable the additional information would be and how you could use it to improve your computing experience. Oh, and by the way, my working title for this segment was How Fast Is That Computer in the Windows? But I concluded that only those of a certain age would make the goofy connection with the 1953 hit song by Patti Page, which was actually recorded in 1952, and that anybody who did make that connection would never forgive me. So I changed the title. You're welcome. If you find these podcasts useful, and I hope you do, might you consider a donation? There are no ads here, and support from listeners is the sole source of income. It's easy. Just visit the website and click the donate button near the top of any page. You can make a one-time donation or schedule a repeating donation every month. I thank you. And so does the cat. In short circuits, these are tough times, and it's far from clear when conditions will improve. For a lot of people, the situation is more than just tough, it's desperate. Not to disregard or even downplay the desperation, resources such as music, books, motion pictures, and television programs can help to reduce the stress. I was going to spend some time this week talking about the paid versions of music streaming services such as Spotify, Pandora, and Apple Music. All of the services do have free versions with varying levels of annoyances from ads and other intrusions. Of course, these services do require internet service, but the internet is so important that I'm going to assume that even those in desperate situations will try to maintain connectivity. Let's look briefly at Pandora and Spotify. Pandora is older, and a limited paid version costs less than Spotify's paid version. Pandora is now owned by SiriusXM, and although I had used it for several years, I switched to Spotify this spring. If you have the budget for the paid service, you'll get music without the ads or other interruptions. 
Pandora costs $5 a month or $10 a month, and Spotify is $10 a month. Both services have around 20 million selections to choose from. Pandora seems to have a better method for finding new music, but Spotify does have a weekly Discover playlist that's helpful when you want to find what's new. Both services include podcasts for those who want more than just music. And if you have to stick with just the free version, Spotify is generally regarded to be the better service. But there are other options, too. Nearly every radio station has a streaming service that works with a web browser or a smart speaker. iHeartMedia lets you listen to its radio stations, but it also has a paid streaming service. The all-access service costs $10 a month for Android and $13 a month for iOS users. The Plus service is $5 a month. And many libraries offer streaming music for free. All you need is a library card. Libraries are, of course, closed right now because of the pandemic, but a lot of them will allow you to sign up for a digital access card online. Besides music, you'll also have access to research materials and a lot of other digital resources, including ebooks. The music isn't quite like playing a CD. My library offers choices of 24 kilobits per second and 64 kilobits per second. By comparison, TechBiter Worldwide's podcast is encoded at 112 kilobits per second, and top quality audio will be encoded at 256 or 320 kilobits per second. So values used for online streaming may seem unacceptably low. That's probably not the case, though. The 48 kilobits per second rate approximates the sound of a good AM radio station on a high-quality radio without static. Not exactly what you want for critical listening, but our desires have changed a lot over the past 50 years. In the 1970s and 1980s, we had big, heavy turntables that were expensive. We had big, heavy amplifiers that were expensive. We had big, heavy speakers that were expensive. The goal was the best possible sound we could get while sitting on a big, heavy sofa, positioned precisely between the two speakers. Then Sony introduced the Walkman in 1979, and that changed everything. We became less interested in having the best audio quality and more interested in being able to carry our music with us. In addition to wanting portable music, we now want music that we can play on any device we own and wherever we are. The MP3 music format is lossy, but it is acceptable for casual listening, and it's perfect for streaming. During the time I was writing this segment, I was listening to Ludwig von Beethoven's Three Sonatas for Flute and Piano, performed by Francesca Paganini and Stefano Malaferrari. And I was listening at 64 kilobits per second from my library's Alexander Street service. By comparison, Spotify offers bit rates of 24 kilobits per second to 320 kilobits per second. The higher 256 and 320 kilobits per second rates are available only to paid subscribers. When I switch from the library service's free 64 kilobits per second streaming service to Spotify at 320 kilobits, there is a clearly audible difference. Lower bit rates can result in harsh-sounding music. Higher bit rates carry more information, and more information makes transitions smoother. Music has a lot of transitions. 
but there's a lot more than music out there to keep us occupied during these times. Libraries are still able to fulfill requests for e-books. Physical books and other media such as CDs and DVDs aren't available, but e-books can be read on phones, tablets, and computers. Library e-books can be loaded to Kindle devices or the Kindle Reader on non-Amazon devices. Most libraries also offer books in EPUB format. Books in this format need the Adobe Digital Editions application. Many libraries around the country have stopped charging late fees for physical materials, and e-books have no late fees. That's because they're automatically returned when they're due. The Columbus Metropolitan Library offers a variety of services that are available to anyone in Ohio who has a Columbus Library card. If you don't have one, you can apply online and the library will email the card number to you. And this applies in most states because most states have libraries in large cities that provide statewide access. Patrons can choose from ebooks and audiobooks provided by Overdrive, movies, music, and audiobooks from Hoopla, classic motion pictures, indie films, and documentaries from Canopy, digital magazines from Flipster, audiobooks from RB Digital access to various historical resources, and online classes, research, and instructions for do-it-yourself projects, all online from your local library. Being stuck inside is rarely a good thing, but we do have options that will help us make the best of these trying times. And maybe this current situation will make government at all levels understand the importance of Internet connectivity for everyone far too many areas are still underserved. If streaming audio and video are too much for your current internet service, reading books online or downloading them works even on slow systems, and when even that is too much, consider connecting briefly and using recommendations you'll find on the web to identify activities, many of which do not require an internet connection. Here are some examples that I found in the past couple of days. Odyssey's 25 suggestions. 15 of them require no internet connection. Anna Marie John's recommendations for the family. This is a list with age-specific choices, and most of the suggestions require no internet connection. CNET's free entertainment choices. Okay, that one is CNET, and most of those will require an internet connection. Memphis television station WREG has 10 Netflix series to binge, Netflix, yeah, so you're going to need an internet connection for that. Or use a search engine like DuckDuckGo to look for other lists of suggestions. There are a lot of them. Scammers aren't stupid. They watch the news and they adapt their messages to fit the narrative. What's distressing is that people continue to fall for the same old scams that have simply been repackaged in new clothing. Then tech writers like me have to write the same old stories and dress them up with new specifics. It shouldn't be this way. Pardon me if I'm a little snarky here. The tried-and-true protective measures kept us safe from the scammer's previous ploy, and the one before that, and the one before that, and the one before that. New threats are simply variations on a theme. So here's the rundown again, and this is important. First, pay attention. If anything about a message seems even a little bit hinky, stop. 
think about what you want to do. Don't follow the link. If the message is from somebody you don't know, don't reply. A legitimate sender, even a lot of phonies, will try again. It's better to ignore a questionable message several times than to get caught in a scam. Second, if there's a link or an attachment, keep the mouse away from it. Links and emails and videos and Facebook personal messages frequently contain malware or will direct you to a website that contains malware. Email messages that appear to come from somebody you know but don't sound at all like the person you know are probably scams. Examine the routing headers if you know how. If not, ignore a message even if it claims to be from your CEO. Third, your bank, savings and loan insurance company and any business will never never ask you to confirm your identity. I say again, never. Period. Never. A message from any business that claims to need you to fix a problem with your account should be treated with extreme care. Don't click the link in the message. If you happen to be a customer of the Ninth Bank of Nowhere and a message from the bank tells you to click a link and log in, don't. Use your web browser. Go directly to the Ninth Bank of Nowhere's website and log in normally. If the bank really needs you to do something, you'll find a message from the bank right there. Likewise, any other company. Number four, nobody legitimate will send a message with an attachment to explain safety measures. If the information is really from the World Health Organization, your state's Department of Health, or a local hospital, the important information will be in the message, not in an attachment. Number five, miracle cures can always be considered either scams intended to get your money or phishing messages intended to get your login credentials. And sixth, keep your computer's operating system, web browser, and anti-malware applications up to date. If there's a firmware update for your network's cable modem or router, install it. But make sure that the update is real first by not assuming that a link in an email is safe. Instead, go to the computer's or router's control panel. Phishing emails have hit an all-time high now that many people are working from home. Spams promote scam cures for COVID-19 and tout phony protective measures. Messages that claim to come with important information may carry attachments that will install malware when you open them. Vigilance, skepticism, and a tiny bit of healthy paranoia will keep you, your computer, and your money safe from the creeps who want to take advantage of a bad situation. Spare parts shouldn't induce any paranoia, but you do have to visit the website to read this week's articles. We'll review virtual private networks and video conferencing. VPN usage has seen a significant increase in the past decade, and many video conferencing applications are far less secure than they should be even for personal use. And 20 years ago, Macromedia had just introduced version 3 of Dreamweaver, and it included fireworks for the first time. Thanks for listening to TechBiter Worldwide, the podcast with an hour's worth of technology news in about 20 minutes. I'm Bill Blinn. Be sure to check out the website, www.techbiter.com. And if you like, send me an email from there. See you next week.